My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. My God, oh my God. I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and they they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You may think I was reading probably from one of the Gospels, possibly even something in the New Testament. That was from Psalm 22, written some thousand years before Christ was crucified. David wrote this psalm. And I think this psalm gives us really a deeper appreciation of what Christ did for us on the cross. It was a prophecy. From the Gospels, we get the story of really the physical events of the crucifixion. But from Psalm 22, we get Christ's perspective. So today we'll get to go into the mind of Christ. Instead of hearing from the eyewitnesses on ground level, we get the bird's eye view of Christ today as we're going to dig into Psalm 22 and, and hear the sufferings, what he went through in his mind, what he went through psychologically, emotionally, how he felt, and then most importantly, spiritually, what happened on the cross. This is probably one of the most striking and important of all the Psalms. And to me, it's probably one of my favorite. I wonder what David was thinking as he was writing this Psalm. He was writing about crucifixion before a crucifixion was ever invented. I'm sure he had to be just bewildered by what the Holy Spirit was doing to him as he was penning this Psalm out. But this Psalm is so deep and so rich. Gives us such a picture of, of who and what Christ did for us. And my hope for us today is that we would get a deeper understanding, really, of the depths of what Christ's suffering on the cross was, and that we can draw closer to our Savior. I know this week I drew much closer to the Savior by reading this psalm and dwelling and thinking upon these verses about what Christ did on the cross. See, that event that David described a thousand years before it happened is the most important event in all of human history. In fact, everything up until that point pointed towards that event, the crucifixion of Christ, and then everything since then has pointed back towards him. Today, join with me as we look into Psalm 22, into the heart and the mind of Christ, and understand what he went through. It's going to be a tough, tough discussion. It's going to be hard There's going to be a lot of difficult things to go through, but I think we need to understand these. We need to understand what Christ did for us to understand the glory of the resurrection. We have to understand the suffering of the cross first. So if you would, pray with me. Father God, Lord, I uh, thank you 
for where you have me right now in this place, in this time. I thank you for all the trials and tribulations and the difficulties I had this week and time of preparation and just struggles with sickness in our home and and difficulties. Lord, I thank you for all those because you brought me to this place, a place where you need me to be, utter dependence on you. Lord, as we talk about the crucifixion today and the utter amazing, unimaginable suffering you went through, Lord, help us to remember you did it all for us. Lord, as we as we go through these things, Lord, just help us to personalize this and, and make it a part of our life to know the depths that you went for each one of us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, many of us know of the events that led up to the crucifixion. We, we know about the events in the garden where Jesus went and he... And he had that anguished prayer where he actually sweat his own blood when he asked God to say, Lord, please take this cup from me. Please. I just know. He knew what he was going to do. He wrote it in Psalm 22. He knew what he was going to go through. He was begging God to take that cup from him. But then he submitted to the Father's will and said, Not my will, but your will be done. And then as we know, he was taken away and going through the misguided trial that they put him through to try to frame an innocent man, if you will. They throw charges upon charges on him, and the Jews charge him really of being the Son of God, of blasphemy. And the Romans thought there was no charge against him. Pilate said he was an innocent man and he shouldn't die. So Pilate wanted to set him free, and he gave the Jews a last chance, right? He said, All right, you know, you got a chance at Passover. You can substitute this innocent man for this well-known murderer and criminal named Barabbas. I'm giving you guys a a get-out-of-jail-free card, basically. What do they do? They let a criminal free, and they sentence an innocent man. Can you imagine being Barabbas? Can you put yourself in Barabbas' shoes? A known criminal set free... I'm sure he was standing around and watching what Jesus went through because he knew that was going to be him. Jesus did the penalty for him. He took the punishment that was there for Barabbas. There's a movie that Gregory Peck stars in. It's an old movie. If you want to get it, it's, called, it's about Barabbas and about his life and, the, and what happened probably later. We don't know exactly his life, but it's a really interesting story about probably what happened in his life as he watched Christ take the punishment for us. And that's what he did for us, each and every one of us. So we need to personalize that each one of us is a Barabbas today. Then the scourging. As Barabbas was sent free, Pilate sent Jesus to be scourged. And this is probably the most difficult and hardest part of it all. We don't know much about the scourging from the Gospels, but we know in Isaiah, in Isaiah 50, it says that they ripped his beard off. It says, Isaiah 50, verse 8, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And in Isaiah 52, it mentions that Jesus was beaten so severely that his form did not look like that of a son of man or a human being. 
People were appalled to look at him. The NIV reads like this. It says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form was marred beyond human likeness. And then the scourge, the thing they used to scourge him was called a flagellum, and it had a short handle, and it had several long leather straps which were either single or braided together, and then had small metal balls or sharp pieces of one attached to the other at the end of the thongs. And the person being flogged was then stripped of their clothing, and they were tied to an upright post, and, and they were beaten on their back and their buttocks and their legs, cut into the muscles and tore ribbons of flesh loose. Extreme pain and loss of blood could cause the victim to go into shock and several people would die from the flogging. And then the bloodied and beaten and battered Christ. They took him and they put his clothes back on and they stuck a thorn of crowns around his head and he was mocked, continued to be mocked and spit at The next thing that happened was the long walk. It's now known as the Via Dolorosa, or the Way of Suffering. So you can go there today to Jerusalem and walk this walk. It's some 650 yards from the town in in Jerusalem up to the mountain, the Mountain of Skulls, or Golgotha it's known, or Calvary in the Latin. His depiction in the Passion is very vivid that he was walking, carrying this 100-pound cross, up this climb with all these people mocking him, jeering at him, spitting at him, and him falling down repeatedly because he's absolutely exhausted. He's been up all night. And then he endured the flogging, which should have killed him, but he's still alive and he's trying to carry this cross up to Calvary. Finally, he gets some help from Simon. gets to help him up too the actual crucifixion area. And the last thing is the crucifixion. I'm going to read a description of the crucifixion from a medical doctor to help us visualize and paint a picture for what Christ went through. He says, The process of crucifixion may be summarized as follows. The cross was laid on the ground and the victim was laid upon it. Nails about seven inches long were driven into his wrists. And the palms of his hands would not have been able to support the weight, so they put it into his wrists. The points of the nails would go into the confines of the medial nerve that would enforce shocks of pain to transmit through the arms. They raised seven feet up. The upright beam was seven feet high. and In the center of the site was a crude seat that supported the victim. And the, the cross beam then was lifted onto the upright beam and their feet were then nailed to the upright beam. When the cross was erected upright it caused massive strain on the the wrists and the arms and the shoulders resulting in dislocation of the shoulder and elbows and joints. And With the arms up and outward the rib cage was held in its fixed position that made it extremely difficult for the victim to breathe and he would therefore be able to only have shallow breaths 
As time passed, the muscles would undergo severe cramps and spasmodic contractions due to the loss of blood and the fixed position of the body and the feet then would try to push up to take a breath. That's a picture that happened, the crucifixion. Now let's get back to the psalm, Psalm 22. and Those are the physical events. Now we want to look into what was going on in Christ's mind. What was he thinking? How did he process this whole thing that was going on all around him? Turn to Psalm 22, verse 14 for a moment. And we're just going to look at a few of these verses. Probably there's so much depth to Psalm 22, so in your time just read through it that week as you remember as we go towards Good Friday and what Christ did for us. But I'm just going to look at verses 14 through 17 today and try to understand just a part of what Christ did and what he was thinking on the cross. Um, the verses before he talks about all these animals, there's all these figures of these animals coming around and bulls and lions. And then in verse 14 he says, I am poured out like water. I'm poured out like water. I think this is referring to the blood that was now flowing out of Christ. He was bloodied all over and the blood was flowing all over. He felt like he was being poured out like water. He was just drained, completely drained from this whole thing. He was probably sweating profusely. He was massive critical loss of all his bodily fluids. As we know in John chapter 19, it says when they pierced his side, there was a sudden flow of water and blood that gushed out of him. And I'll talk about that later, about what was actually happening in his heart and actually happening inside him. And still in verse 14, and then it goes on to say, all my bones were out of joint. And in the crucifixion, they actually had to twist them to get their feet to be nailed to the cross. And pretty much all their bones were then dislocated, their shoulder bones and their elbows and their knees and all their joints were pretty much had to be dislocated. I think that's what it's referring to here, that feeling that every joint in his body was now dislocated and out of its socket. One commentator said that his blessed body was lean and emaciated with labor, grief, and fasting. During the whole course of his ministry, which made him look as nearly 50 years old when he was but 33. He said that Jesus hung on the cross, he looked like a worm. Verse 6 of Psalm 22, he refers to that. A worm or a shell of a man. His ribs stuck out and his bones were all out of joint. There was nothing attractive about him. He looked like a starving Ethiopian person. Verse 14, it goes on to say, My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. So we refer to this to the mental anguish that Jesus was going through. That You know, when we go through that anguish, that stress and that strain in our life, we just feel it on our heart and... Many people have heart attacks a lot of ways because of just stress and strain in their life. He's going through this mental anguish in his heart. just feels like it's like wax. Other people also think that he could, he's probably had a contusion in his heart as he fell one of those times up to the crucifixion site so that his heart is maybe beginning to rupture. And it also says that 
it feels like it's melted within him. This is referring to kind of deep in his guts and his bowels. or just a bad feeling in his guts and his bowels. And we also feel that, I know, when we're in stress and strain. You know, you get ulcers and, and there's things going on in our stomach and our bowels because of that stress and the strain. And that's, I think, what Jesus is feeling here. Verse 15, it goes on to say that my strength was dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. I think this is referring to the extreme thirst that Christ was feeling. He was experiencing. Can you imagine Jesus having to go through this night, a night worth of beatings and lack of sleep? I mean, he was taken that night and he was up all night. That trial that he went through was all night long. Right? He'd be stand and mocked and beaten. So he's up all night long. He probably hadn't had anything to drink for more than 12 hours. And then when he loses all that blood, it makes him even more thirsty. That's why David predicted that my strength is dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth like fragile pottery that absorbs water that evaporates quickly. You know, if you think about pottery, that when it's dry, you pour water in it. That clay just soaks up the water quickly. What a vivid image of the thirst that Christ was going through, just dire dire thirst. That's why in John we see that he screams out, I thirst. I thirst. You know, when we're thirsty, we'd like a nice cool glass of water. But what do they give to Jesus? They give him vinegar. Can you imagine? Dire, dire thirst and being given vinegar to drink. In verse 16, it goes on to say, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. And David uses a lot of animal illustrations in this psalm to refer to the evil that was going on around him. And, and the reference to dogs that the Jews usually referred to Gentiles as dogs. So that's probably what they're referring to as the Roman soldiers that crucified him. They're referring to him as dogs. These evildoers that surround him. There's a lot of paintings out there that show even dogs around the crucifixion site that literally take this literally. There probably were dogs maybe around him and evildoers surrounding him. As we know also that Pharisees were around him watching, mocking him as well. It's also maybe what he could be referring to as some of the Pharisees that were around him. who were watching, making sure that this guy died because they hate Jesus so much. I also think there's probably some supernatural things going on here. The demons now were celebrating. Yeah, we got him. We got Jesus. <laughs> got him nailed to the cross. And they're psyched. And there's probably something supernatural going on here. And that's probably what he's referring to. is all these different animals when he's talking about the roaring lions. Because he talks about in verse 12, a ravaging lion. I'm sure Satan... As is referred to in First Peter, maybe that's what he's talking about. That Satan is just psyched. He's got him. He's got Jesus. He's got him nailed to a cross. He's winning the battle. There's something just mysterious and supernatural, I think, that's going on there. It's revealed in this psalm. And then the next thing he says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And I don't think there's any other way to translate this than crucifixion. Which is so amazing that David would write that literally. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Because many crucifixions, they only would pierce their hands and they'd actually tie their feet up. As we know in Luke chapter 
24 that they actually nailed Christ's feet as well. They nailed his hands and they nailed his feet. Some 700 years before crucifixion was even invented, David wrote that, that that would happen. They didn't even know about crucifixion. But he prophesied that Christ's hands and his feet would both be nailed. In verse 17 it says, I can count all my bones. And they stare, they look at me and they stare and they gloat over me. That's a humiliating statement. They stare and they gloat over me. Jesus was stripped. He was virtually naked on the cross. Everything exposed to the whole world. I just can't imagine the humiliation that he had to go through by hanging on that cross. He hung on that cross for six hours, naked. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Aramaic, it actually says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachniki. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bystanders standing by misinterpreted what he was saying. They thought he was saying, Elias, Elias. They thought he was calling for Elijah to come and save him. And there's a lot of controversy about this verse and what he said in this statement. Some people think he was actually feeling like he was abandoned by God. Feel like that he's he's had it with God. It's like, God, why would you do this to me? However, I believe this is a real emotion that Christ experienced. Which he'd never experienced in all of eternity, nor will he again. Will the Son of God, the creator of the universe, ever experience this again see for a moment in time the son of God was separated from the father as he bore the sins of the world and the wrath of God upon himself 1 Peter chapter 2 it says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I thought about that last night as our daughter Ella Grace were going through a thing with her right now where she gets up four o'clock in the morning and she wants to get up. She wants a bottle. And she wants mom and dad to come in and give her a bottle. We're trying to break her of this bad habit. As we want her to sleep through the night, we can't go on our whole lives waking up at four in the morning. And so we're trying to make her just deal with it, try to work her way through it. So last night at about five in the morning, as I watched and listened to my daughter cry out, Daddy, 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 off and on for like an hour and a half, she kept crying out and crying out. Finally recognized what the father was feeling. And his son was crying out to him. 
that he was separated. He was abandoned. He was left alone. So there's no one that could help Christ. No one. No one on earth could help Christ. No one in heaven. Because the Father who was holy, as he watched the sins of the world, the wrath of God poured out upon him, had to turn his back on his Son. See, the wrath of God was being poured out on Christ. The wrath of the Father was being poured out upon the Son, and for a moment in history, the Son was separated from His Father, and yet, all was well with the universe. All was well for mankind. The Apostles' Creed states that Christ descended into hell. I don't really see scriptural support for Him descending into hell, but I do see that He went through hell on earth. As he was on that cross, he was separated from God, and that is hell. And that had to be hell for Christ, who was with God, intimately related and close to him every moment of his life. And for a moment in time, he had to be separated. That was hell on earth. As he bore the wrath of God upon himself. Yet after he died, the separation was over. The body took on our sin. The blood was shed. The perfect sacrifice was made. And when this act of atonement was over, he cried, It is finished! It is finished. In the Greek, that is telestai. And it's translated, paid in full. Paid in full. He paid in full for every sin we ever committed. Every sin from the past every sin in the present, and every sin in the future. He paid it in full, entirely, one time, one sacrifice for everybody. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And then Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I believe Jesus immediately went to be with the Father in heaven. His soul immediately went to heaven. And as Christ promised to the criminal on the cross, he said, Today I will be with you in paradise. So how did Jesus die? Many people believe in, in a crucifixion. Many people that are crucified were actually suffocated. They slowly suffocated to death. And this usually took three or four days to happen. Yet Christ died in six hours. So why did he die in six hours? Well, I think we can gain some insight into this from John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus said this, he said, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. I believe that this verse and his last statement, Into your hands I commit my spirit, seems to show that Jesus' death occurred by giving himself up. He willingly gave it up. 
He had the power to lay down his own life. And he proved this power over death when he was resurrected. So did he willingly lay down his life? You bet he did. Willingly laid down his life. There's much controversy after the passion that the Jews killed Jesus. Jews didn't kill Jesus. Willingly laid down his own life. So if he did not die of suffocation, what did he die of? Many doctors believe that he died of a massive myocardial infarction. You guys all know what that is, right? I didn't. Basically, it's a broken heart. In our terms, it's a broken heart. It's a ruptured heart. His heart had ruptured. John chapter 19, as I referred to before, that blood and water gushed out from him. That what happened is his heart had ruptured and his, this, this sac called the pericardium was full of water and full of blood. And so when they went to him to break his legs, they saw that he was already dead. They took a spear and they pierced it up into his side and water and blood gushed out of him. Which would be evidence that his heart had ruptured. So you may be asking yourself, why? Why did Jesus, why did he do this? Why did he do such an excruciating, horrible, torturous death? Why couldn't he just die of old age? He could have still been the perfect sacrifice for our sin, right? If he just died of old age, why did it have to be so brutal? Why did he have to suffer so much? Our society does not understand why an innocent man like this would want to be tortured to death. I took a group of teenagers to the Passion when it first came out, and this whole group, none of them were believers. None of them knew Christ. There were some that were girls and some that were boys. And I took them all there, and they watched the movie. They watched the graphic presentation of how Christ died, and, and the girls were just crying weeping profusely they just could not stop crying all the way home and into the night they were crying and sobbing and I prayed that that sorrow that they were feeling would be a godly sorrow that would lead them to repentance and for the boys they were just like a deer in the headlights they just were baffled what? this, this guy he didn't do anything he, he was innocent. I don't understand. Why would this innocent man... Why would they do that to him? I don't understand that. We're in a book club. We kind of asked the same thing. We're in this book club and they were discussing the Da Vinci Code. Isn't that interesting? And the club is mostly... They're, well, they're all not Christians... And Sue and I are the only Christians in this club. And as we discuss the book and go through some of the smaller stuff of the book, then finally we kind of get to the heart of the issue of the book. And one of the persons in the group says that, you know, I don't, I don't understand. Why, why are Christians so bent out of shape about this book? And they basically was looking right at me. <laughs> Why are you guys so bent out of shape about this book? And I said, well, because it's saying that Jesus sinned. 
basically. It's saying that Jesus had a child out of wedlock. And that's the root of the book, is that Jesus had a child with Mary Magdalene, and there's generations after that of this destiny going on. So that, that was basically the heart of the matter. They wanted to know why we were bent out of shape about that. And so I had to say, well, that would mean Jesus was a sinner and that he wasn't perfect. And see that Jesus had to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin so that we could have eternal life. That's what we believe. And the group kind of looked at me all puzzled. and So I had to go on to talk about, well, see, in the Old Testament, what happened is that when the Israelites would sin, well, they'd have to get a sacrifice for that sin. And usually it was like a lamb, and it was a perfect lamb, unblemished lamb. And they would sacrifice that. But see, that sacrifice would only satisfy for a short amount of time for just those sins for a small group of people. Jesus had to be the once and for all sacrifice for all sin. And to do that, he had to be absolutely perfect. He could have no sin, not even one. And so from that point on, we kind of went on, and it really the discussion was just amazing how people would just bring up their whole spiritual background and try to discuss where they believe and what they believe and why they believe it. And one man went on talking that he was raised Catholic and later became a Mormon and he's just going on to say that, you know, I believe that God's a loving God and, you know, I believe he, I do good things and, I, and I, I really try to treat people better. You know, I just had to respond to that. <laughs> I said, well, you're right, God is a loving God. But he's also a holy God. And being holy means he's absolutely perfect. Being holy means he can't have anyone with him that's not perfect. And that's so for me. I know I'm not perfect. I know that I sin every day. So I needed to put my trust and faith in Christ and what he did for me so that I could be with a holy, perfect, loving God. Another man said that, you know, I just can't accept that. I just can't accept that a person like Stalin or Hitler who went on and murdered millions of people could somehow have a deathbed confessional and go to heaven. It doesn't make sense to me. There's no way that can happen. They looked at me again. I said, well, that's grace. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all in human terms to... People without the Spirit of God in them doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense why a God would come down to earth and become a man and not rule the world in a ruler and a king like he should be, but he would come down as a humble servant, a carpenter. He'd live in humble circumstances. He'd live an absolutely perfect life, not without one sin. And he wouldn't just go through his days and die of old age. No, he'd live a torturous, horrible death. It doesn't make sense. Human turns, it just does not make sense. But Jesus foreshadowed it. In John chapter 8, he said that he had to die this kind of death. He said he had to be lifted up. Isaiah, in chapter 53 of Isaiah, was prophesied how he had to die. He said in Isaiah chapter 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
as it says in Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. See, he had to die that way. His blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. He had to be crushed. He had to be pierced. So where are you today? Where are you today, believer? Just going around saying, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins. No big deal. Or can you personalize what he did for you? The depths of suffering he went for each and every one of us. The separation that he imposed willingly upon himself. The separation from his father. I know that's where I went this week. I just can't imagine what he went through. As my daughter laid in the bed crying, Daddy, Daddy. I caved. <laughs> I had to go, go to her and she was so happy. I went to her. She's so happy Daddy came. <laughs> I'm a wimp, I know. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe tonight I can hang it out, put some earplugs in or something. But that's what got ha- happened. The Father and the Son were reunited. Once he took the sins of the world upon himself, the Father saw it was good. And he brought him up and they seated on the right hand side of the Father. What an awesome thing. And as far and as depressing as the crucifixion is, so much more glorious and exciting is the resurrection. Next week we'll go into the resurrection and we'll talk about heaven. It'll be a lot more uplifting, I guarantee you. (laughs) So stick around for next week with the resurrection. It'll be exciting to hear about what Jesus did and how he lived on this earth in his resurrected body, which gives us such a great glimpse of what heaven will be like, that he is still alive and living today. If you're here today and... You're asking similar questions that people in our book club were asking. You're in the right place. You're here by no accident. That God is a sovereign God. He doesn't do these things by pure coincidence. You're here today by no accident. And if you're here today and you heard this message of what Christ did for you personally and it's touched your heart, then put your trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. I pray that for the people in my book club that they don't understand it. It's hard to understand, but God has got to unveil their hearts so that they can understand what Christ did for them, for each and every one of us. So if that's you today, all you need to do is believe. Believe that He did that, that He died for you. He went through those suffering. He went through that pain for you. For you to personalize that, that He is saying, Come, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. He's saying, Come. I did the deed. I paid the punishment. All you need to do is come. That's God's grace 
That's God's forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for what you did for us. Thank you that you bore the sins of the world upon yourself. You did something so supernatural, so out of this world that we, in our own understanding, cannot fathom it. I pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, that you prompt in their heart that they would come. They would come to the cross. That they would come and they would bow to you as Savior, as Lord. Because, Lord, you came to this earth as a humble servant. You died a humiliating, naked death, a horrible death. So humiliating that people were appalled even to look at you. Lord, you're going to come back as a reigning lion, as king, and as Lord. And at that time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. So, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today that has not accepted you, as their Lord and as their Savior, they would bow their knee today. They'd accept you as Lord and Savior. They'd accept your perfect sacrifice for sin. And they would come. They would come to the cross. Lord, I thank you so much that you overcame sin, that you overcame death. That it was a perfect sacrifice that your Father said, yes, you will be lifted up. You will be resurrected. And there will be a place called heaven. It will be prepared for everyone that puts their faith and trust in what you did, my son, what you did. They'll have eternal life with me because of you. That's grace. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Lord, let your grace empower us and motivate us every day as we go into this world. Let it motivate us this week as we have opportunities to declare your good news to the dying world, a dead and dying dark world that's all around us every day, the people that reject you constantly like they rejected you on the cross. They're out there today. Let us declare your good news this week. And when they ask, why do you celebrate a crucifixion? Why do you go to a Good Friday service? Why do you go to Easter? Why do you even go to church? We can declare the good news that he is risen. He's conquered sin, he's conquered death, and you too can have eternal life. Lord, I thank you for the good news. I thank you for what you did. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.